In Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 44. <coughs> there in Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 44, let us now give our attention to the reading and the hearing of God's holy and inspired word. And Jesus said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we do come before thee this morning as we have opened thy word, as we have heard it read, and as we receive instruction, we would plead, O Lord, for thy mercies. For our hearts are often dull, our ears are often dull of hearing, and our hearts are sometimes resistant to the things of thy word. And so we ask, O Lord, and plead that thou wouldst come by the work of thy spirit and enable us that we might hear thy word and receive it. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. There are sermon notes out there in the foyer for you as we look at this important topic this morning of empowered witnesses of Christ. One commentator has well said that this section in Luke's gospel is an epilogue that is written as a prologue. In other words, it is that very point that draws the connection between the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. Because all that Jesus began to do and teach, all that is recorded there in the opening of Luke's Gospel, when Theophilus says that this is an account, this is an account of all that Jesus did. And so we come to the end of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we see that it ends not in defeat. It does not end in sorrow, but it ends in joy and it ends in victory. Because even as the disciples thought to themselves when Jesus was suffering, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, they did not fully understand what Jesus told them. Perhaps as he came to them, as we saw previous weeks, um, when he stood in their presence and they were filled with fear, Jesus speaks unto them peace, reminding them that as the Prince of Peace, he has all power and authority, that he has all victory. 
over the power of sin and death. And so this is the thing that draws the connection to the account in Luke's Gospel. I'm sure all of you can quote from memory the end of Matthew's account of the Gospel there in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. There in Matthew's account of the Great Commission, Jesus spoke unto his apostles, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things that whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Now in Luke's account, this is the Great Commission. And it's a little different than the other gospel that was just read. But in essence, Jesus stands before these apostles who who have seen him resurrected from the dead. They weren't sure where he was. His body was not in the tomb and they were afraid. And yet Jesus comes and speaks unto them, peace be unto you. And he eats in their presence. And then he begins to speak to them. We find here in Luke's account of the gospel that Jesus will leave them. Yet he's promised that he will not leave them as orphans, but that he will continue to be with his church unto the end of the age. And so as we think about the mission that Jesus gives to his apostles, we come to this passage of scripture and we see the preparation that is made for their ministry for their mission. I made the outline simple, I hope. That is the preparation for ministry, the proclamation of ministry, and the power of ministry. It's not often that the pastor has all of his points rhyming with the same letter. And yet as you look at that, we see that Jesus begins to make preparation for the apostolic ministry. Jesus' work on earth is complete. His work is finished. And how will that work continue? Well, we come to verse 44, and he says unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you. This is a a troubling um, verse as it opens, because the question is, well, what words is he talking about? What words did he speak unto them? Well, it goes back to what has been previously stated there in chapter 24, verse 27, when Jesus began at Moses and all the prophets and expounded unto them the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And it's interesting there as we observe that, that even under the covenant of Moses, Even under the prophets, it was all predicted concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Oftentimes we miss that and think, well, how can we see Christ in the Old Testament? And yet the suffering and glory of Christ and even the, the, the disciples, all of that is foretold in the Scriptures. 
the Old Testament scriptures. It speaks of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ in Psalm chapter 2, in Psalm 16, in Psalm 22, in Psalm 110, Isaiah chapter 53. All of those passages speak about the suffering and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus has already revealed unto them the things which the scripture said concerning himself. Now you have to understand, and we might think, well, these disciples were really dull. These disciples were really um, not getting it because they walked with Jesus, they saw Jesus, and yet they did not understand. And yet how easy it is for us to grow dull of hearing. How easy it is for us to come to the suffering and the humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, and just think, oh, this is really, really sobering. And it is sobering. But it is there to remind us that what Christ did in His suffering, what Christ did in His humiliation, was predicted by the prophets, was predicted under the Old Testament, so that we might be redeemed from the power of sin and death. Now, those disciples had no clue at that point what Jesus was talking about. Jesus told them on three occasions that Christ would suffer, that he would die, and he would rise again on the third day. And they did not understand that. But here as we come to this passage of Scripture, we see that Jesus makes more clear their ministry and their mission after he leaves the earth. And so we see the preparation there that is made for their work and for their ministry. So those words that he had spoken unto them were those words concerning Moses and the prophets. He says, I spoke these while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. Now here Jesus refers to what we know as the threefold um, heading of the Old Testament. That in the Old Testament, this goes back to the, the time of the Jews, that the Old Testament is divided into three sections. The writings of Moses, which are those first five books of the Old Testament, in all of the prophets and in the Psalms or the writings. But notice Jesus says to them, all these things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the writings or the Psalms concerning me. And this is important because I think oftentimes there are some Christians who see no connection between the Old and New Testament. Well, we are New Testament Christians. We have nothing to do with the Old Testament. And yet it's the Old Testament that speaks to the Jews concerning the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, concerning the fact that his suffering, death, and resurrection, his humiliation and exaltation would be a fulfillment of those scriptures that are found there in the Old Testament. And so we see that it all speaks of the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ, both in his humiliation And in his exaltation. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ was not the end. That's not the end of the story. The story is still ongoing. 
But the work that Jesus did was accomplished and fulfilled. Notice he ends his gospel with those words that Christ fulfills all of these things and it is all fulfilled in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms or the writings. When you go back to Luke, in Luke's account of the gospel, there in chapter 1, as Theophilus began to record there, in, verse, in those verses there in chapter 1, For as much as ye have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us. So he's writing that account of those things that are believed among those early disciples. Even as they were delivered unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. And so notice there in verse 2 that Luke is giving an eyewitness testimony. He's not giving a history lesson. He's giving an eyewitness testimony of the beginning of the eyewitnesses and the ministry of the Word of God. And then when you continue on in the Gospel of Luke, particularly there in chapter 1, and we've already looked at that, but it tells of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 5 through 80 of chapter 1. We see the account of Mary and Elizabeth who are expecting child. And there in chapter 1, verse 69, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath redeemed, visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And there it tells of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ would come. That the Lord Jesus Christ's birth was a testimony to the work of God. And then in those opening pages we see that Christ came to fulfill the scriptures. Now here at the end of Luke's account of the Gospels, he reminds them that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law, the prophets, the writings. The law would be the works of Moses. And so Jesus comes to them and tells them that these things have been fulfilled. Now verse 45 is very important, and I think we don't want to miss this. Because they knew the scriptures. They knew these things. Jesus wasn't telling them something that was like, really? I've never heard this before. They knew these things. But verse 45 says, Then opened he their understanding, that they might understand the Scriptures. This was important and necessary to the preparation of their ministry. Not only were they to hear that Jesus fulfilled all of the prophecies of the Old Testament, But Jesus needed to give them understanding of the scriptures so that they might fulfill their ministry. He was constantly telling him, his disciples, throughout his earthly ministry, the things that would happen. 
He constantly told them it would be fulfilled by Scripture. This is nothing new. In chapter 9, he tells them twice that the Son of Man would be delivered up. In chapter 17, he tells them that he must suffer and be rejected by men. A prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53. In chapter 18 of Luke, he tells them that the scriptures must be fulfilled about Jesus being delivered over to the Gentiles. In other words, over to the Roman authorities. Chapter 22, he tells them that the scriptures about him being identified with the transgressor must be fulfilled. So Jesus was telling them over and over again, these things must be fulfilled which were written about me. But then we find here that Jesus opens their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. If you go back to our section last week, there in verse 24 of chapter 24, Jesus says, And certain of them were which, us, which were with us went to the sepulcher, and found it even so as the women had said, but him they saw not. Then Jesus said unto them, those two on the road to Emmaus, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and entered into his glory? Verse 31 says, Their eyes were opened and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. Notice Jesus there tells them that they're dull, that they're slow of hearing. And then he asks the question, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? But verse 45, I think, is the most important point of this passage. Because he not only tells them the scriptures, reminds them of the scriptures, but he opens their understanding. I think this is so important, and J.C. Ryle brings some wonderful application of this in his commentary on, um, on Luke 24. But it's not enough to know what the scripture says. If your mind is not open, if you don't have understanding of these things, then how can you do what God has called you to do? We live in an age and there are those who would say that all that is necessary is just to preach the word. But God uses ordinary men. God uses weak and sinful vessels to proclaim that word. But if the people's mind is not open, if their understanding is not enlightened, how will they know the scriptures? I'm sure you can testify, I can certainly testify of this in my own life. When I first came to Christ, my eyes were completely blind to the things of God. I was, I was raised to believe that if you just go through the rituals of the church and, and do everything that was required of you, that somehow, maybe in the end, you might get into heaven. But for me as a young Christian, the scriptures begin to open to me. And for the first time, I began to understand the things of the Scripture. 
And I was hungry for the word of God. And Jesus had to open the dull minds of these 11. He had to open their understanding so that they might understand the scriptures. Well, why is that important? Because they will be given power to go and to proclaim the gospel after his ascension. And how else would they be able to bring the word of God without understanding? Christ is the great prophet of the church. I think this is an important point to note that Christ in his prophetic office does two things. He reveals the will of God to man and then he illumines the mind and opens the hearts. This is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that he has that threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. And as our prophet, he brings the word of God to us. And as prophet, he gives understanding and opens the hearts. The work of Christ is to open the mind and heart effectually to receive the truth. How is it that church members can sit under the preaching of the word of God? And Charles Spurgeon testifies to this. Never having heart that is changed or transformed. Even under the great ministry of Martin Lloyd-Jones, there were people whose minds were dull after sitting under the preaching of the word. And oftentimes the word has two effects. The word can open our minds and give us understanding, or the word can cause us to be more hardened, that we fall under the power of sin. And yet Christ, as our prophet, opens the mind. He opens the heart effectually to receive the word. I think it's so important to understand in our day that the external means of preaching, the external means of a man standing in a pulpit and proclaiming the word of God cannot open the heart. And for those who think, well, they need to have some connection. They need to have connection with the Spirit. Think of the ministry of Isaiah and Jeremiah. Were they not great preachers? And yet, many people rejected the word that they gave. They both speak of the heart of man being closed to the word of God. And so it's not just the external means. Because that can't do anything. It can't open the heart. Man can't open his own heart. And there's only two ways that the mind can be opened. And this is what Jesus shows here in the Gospel of Luke. First of all, he has to send preachers. And then as he sends preachers, he must illumine the hearts of the hearers that they might receive it. And so as their minds become more clear, as their hearts are less dull, they begin to understand the things of Scripture. You know that passage there in Romans? How shall they hear unless one be sent? And there in Romans chapter 9 and 10, it speaks of the good news of the gospel where workers are sent that they might proclaim so that people might, by faith, hear the word of God preached. God is not ordained to save people through drama. 
God is not ordained to save people through music. God is not ordained to save people through whatever measures some preacher may come up with. God has ordained to save His elect through the preaching of the gospel. And so Jesus must open their understanding. Jesus must open their minds. Because as those eyewitnesses who go forth and testify unto the ends of the earth, the people must hear the word of the Lord. And so Jesus begins to prepare them for that ministry by opening their minds and opening their understanding. And as he does that, we come to the second point, and that is the proclamation of his ministry. Once their eyes are open, once their hearts are filled with understanding, what is to be the proclamation? What is to be the purpose of their ministry? And here, this is what Jesus gives to the apostles. Thus it is written, verse 46, And thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise again from the dead the third day. Notice there in verse 46, he uses that word that it behooved Christ to suffer. That word there is the word that simply means it was necessary. He must suffer. There was no other way for the salvation of sinners than for the perfect spotless one, the one who was impeccable in his nature. He must suffer and die for sinners. And so he tells them, thus it is written. Again, he reminds them that the scriptures fulfill these things, that all that is written of Christ must indeed be proclaimed. Verse 7 of chapter 24, Jesus saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. But now those words become more clear. Because they have understanding. They have wisdom. Now they can proclaim that work unto the nations. And this is the primary work of the church. This is the primary work of the apostolic ministry. That they are to go and preach repentance and remission of sins. In his name, among where? All nations, beginning in Jerusalem. And I think this is an important point that we often overlook. This was not just a ministry for the apostles. As Matthew records in his commission, Lo, I am with you, how long? Unto the end of the age. And so Christ is not only with those apostles, but he is also with the church in every age to preach that gospel unto all nations. And so that gospel is what? That gospel is not a self-help thing that is often taught and by some. It is not this gospel of health, wealth, and prosperity. It is not this gospel of using the means or the things that God has given you to save your soul. The gospel is repentance and forgiveness of sins preached to all nations. 
Now notice the order is not forgiveness or remission of sins and repentance. That's what some ordinarily believe. But the gospel comes with repentance. What did Jesus say earlier in the gospel? He said it to to the Jews, to those religious leaders who condemned him. He says, unless you repent, you shall likewise perish. And repentance is not that work in and of ourselves, but repentance is that work of God where he convicts man of their need for a Savior. Unless you come to know that you need a Savior, unless you come to know that you need a Redeemer, you cannot be saved. And so the work of these apostles, the work that goes to the end of the age, is to proclaim repentance. That is a turning from sin, an acknowledgement that sin will lead you to hell, but acknowledging that Christ Jesus died for sinners. And as the Apostle Paul, that great early apostle and preacher of the church says, Christ died to save sinners of whom I am chief, acknowledging that he was the worst of sinners. Yet even as hardened as, as Saul's heart was in the, the persecution of Christians there in the early church, the Lord brought him to repentance. He opened his mind. He opened his heart. And he no longer kicked against the goads, but then he came to proclaim that gospel. And so, Paul's, so Paul preached it. All the early apostles preached it. The church for thousands of years has preached the same message of the gospel. That men are dead in their sins. That men need to repent and turn from their sin and turn unto Christ and find forgiveness and mercy. So Jesus says, your ministry will take you first to Jerusalem, then unto the ends of the earth. Preach to all nations, not just some, but begin that ministry there in Jerusalem. And so that was the beginning of their ministry. Here we see that Christ gives that work to these extraordinary men. I think this is an important point to note. He will give that ordinary work of proclaiming the gospel to ordinary ministers of the gospel who would succeed the apostles in their work of preaching, teaching, and baptizing, as Matthew 28 tells us. But the office of the apostle, these 11, and then that one 12 apostle would be added later in Acts chapter 1. But the office of the apostle is an extraordinary work that would soon expire. These apostles had an infallible and directive power. No man can claim infallibility. But these apostles could claim infallibility because they had a direct power from God. They were the agents of revelation. They were the ones whose minds were first opened that they might understand. But that ordinary work of proclaiming repentance and remission of sins continues. There's no teaching of successors 
to those original apostles or office of a bishop as being the successor of the apostles. Even the great Anglican bishop J.C. Ryle denied that notion of apostolic succession. There is no successor. There's no greater apostle that's going to come. But the work, the ordinary work of salvation continues because Christ reminds his church that I will be with you always. When? Unto the end of the ages. And so that apostolic ministry continues, but through the ordinary work of pastors and teachers. And so they were infallible in what they taught. They were agents of revelation. But their preaching to all nations was a fulfillment of a number of passages. Notice their preaching is also a fulfillment of the Old Testament. When you go to um, Psalm 110, which is one that uh, speaks of the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ, there in Psalm 110, verse 2, The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of thine enemies. And here the kingdom of God goes forth even in the midst of God's enemies, Christ sets up his mediatorial kingdom and all the nations of the earth. He sets up his glorious kingdom among his people. And then we see in Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 2 through 4. We uh, are just scratching the surface, but you can look at these on your own later. But Isaiah chapter 2 foretells the word of Isaiah concerning Jerusalem and Judea. And it shall come to pass in the last days, that is the age of the church, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above all the hills and all the nations shall flow unto it. I think of that image of of Pastor David Robbins going to, to Italy and seeing people literally streaming as refugees from Syria and from China and other places coming to the borders of Israel. And they're not sure what to do with these people. But here we see that the nations flow unto it, that the people will come to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God, and he will teach them his ways. They will walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law. And the word from where? Jerusalem. And so here is a fulfillment of that preaching ministry, that proclamation that was given. They are to preach repentance and remission. Preaching the last command that Jesus gave is the first command of the church. And here we find that they are called to go and to proclaim this saving work to the ends of the earth. And then lastly, we see the power of that ministry as they go out. And ye, speaking to those 11 apostles, are witnesses of these things. They had seen these things that you and I have not seen. But he says, Behold, I send forth the power, the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until... Ye have been endued with power 
from on high. Jesus says two things here. You are witnesses. And so you're being sent to proclaim repentance and remission of sins. But you're not just being sent out unequipped. You're being sent out with power from on high. You know, any work we do, we always have the instrument and the resources given to us to do the work. Yet in a spiritual sense, the workers are sent out here, the witnesses are sent. But they can't go on their own power and strength, but they must go in the power of the risen Christ. And so here we find that the Lord Jesus Christ will give them power that they might proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. I think oftentimes, and even in Reformed churches, I think we fail to understand that the work of the ministry is not done in our own power and strength. Oftentimes we forget that. But it is the work of God's Spirit moving in the hearts of people. And when you see that vision of of the Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost and filling the apostles with languages they had never learned. They were speaking the Word of God to those tribes of Jews coming from all over the earth. Only the Spirit of God could give them power to preach like Peter did on the day of Pentecost. Only the Spirit of God can give a man power and strength. Yet as they went forth, they were promised that not only would Jesus be with them, but that He would give them the power and the strength of the Spirit of the living God. And so here, as we are reminded in that final commission that Matthew records, that He gives them His Spirit that they might go and proclaim the saving work of God. It is a supernatural work. It is an ordinary work. But it is an ordinary work done in supernatural means that God might be glorified. And when the church fails to do the work of the kingdom in the power of the Spirit, when they do it in their own strength, then we find that we fail. I think there's two extremes here, and I think we need to be reminded of that. I think the the obvious extreme is those who reject the work of the Spirit in the life of the church. church is impotent. The church has no power without the Spirit. But then on the other hand, we have those excesses that we saw during the Great Awakening, where we have to kind of muster up that Spirit, where we have to revive the people, where we have to have people fainting and falling under the Spirit and people barking like dogs, These are excesses that we have seen. But that is not the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit works ordinarily through the preaching of the Word. And He brings people under conviction. That is the promise that He's given to His church even unto the end of the age. And so in summary, as Jesus gives them that promise of the Holy Spirit... They were able to do amazing things just as Jesus did in Acts chapter 8. You see work of Philip. You see the work of those apostles going forth. Jesus tells them in John, If you have seen me, 
you have seen my Father. And so as we see the work of the Spirit in the life of the apostles there in the book of Acts, we see that we can never divorce the work of the church from the work of the Spirit. Our lives are changed today because of the power of the Holy Spirit and through the gift promise that is given to the church. Not just to the apostles, but it is given ordinarily to the church in every age so that that work of salvation might continue to go forth to the ends of the earth. Has Christ opened your eyes? That you might see, has Christ opened your understanding? That you might see His glory? Has Christ shown you what is the right way to go? We need to pray daily that Christ would illumine us. I would hope in our preparation for the Sabbath that we're always praying, Lord, illumine my understanding. Give me insight that I might know the Scriptures. Sometimes it might not be clear to us on the surface. But we need to pray for more of the illuminating work of the Spirit. But as the people of God, we must pray regularly for the proclamation of the gospel. We need to pray for those who go forth and bring the saving work of Christ unto the ends of the earth. You're sitting here this morning, and perhaps this may sound unfamiliar to you. Perhaps. You have never heard or seen these things before. And yet today is a day to be reminded that the way to salvation is through the work of Christ. Turning from sin and finding forgiveness and mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do not know Christ today, if you've not trusted in His mercy and grace, I would urge you to cry out to Him and seek for His mercy you might indeed find life in Him. Let us go forth this day giving thanks unto God for the continual working of His Spirit in all the nations of the earth because Christ is coming for a people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation and we will see the realization of what Jesus tells in His great commission. That I will be with you always even unto the end of the age. May we pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we do give Thee thanks this morning for that wonderful working of Thy Spirit. We do confess oftentimes we fail to understand the work of Thy Spirit, the life of Thy church. We are often dull in our hearing, dull in our application of the Scriptures. But we ask, O Lord, that Thou wouldst give us understanding that Thou wouldst continue to do the work that Thou hast promised to fulfill in the life of Thy church. And we do pray that as Thy people, we might continue to grow the knowledge of the Lord, that we might pray fervently that the nations of the earth might hear and receive the good news of the gospel. And indeed, it is good news. And we give Thee thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So let us stand as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. As we sing from Psalm 22f, My God, my God, why?